0: Today's episode is an interview I conducted with Dr. Steve Schoen on his new book, Women of Liberty. Dr. Schoen received his Ph.D. from the University of California, Riverside, in 1992. He has taught at a number of colleges, including Winona State University, Gonzaga University, and the University of Texas-Rio Grande Valley. He is the author of Lysander Spooner, American Anarchist, and was a contributor to the Sage Handbook of Human Trafficking and Modern Day Slavery. His new book examines the lives and ideas of ten radical feminist and anarchist thinkers from around the world. This episode focuses on French anarchist Louise Michel, who lived an incredible life of protest and revolt. Born out of wedlock in a small village in 1830, she became a teacher and opened a school in Paris. She taught underprivileged children while participating in women's rights groups and developing a philosophy of civil disobedience. She became a leader during the Paris Commune and advocated for women's equality. After the Commune was suppressed, she was exiled to New Caledonia for 10 years. Upon returning to France in 1880, she traveled across Europe, lecturing about anarchism and feminism. On one of her trips, she was shot by a disgruntled clown, yet still managed to finish her speech. She died in Marseille in 1905, and her funeral was attended by perhaps tens of thousands of people, if not more. Michelle influenced many feminists and anarchists around the world, among them Noe Ito, a Japanese feminist of the post-Meiji period. While this interview focuses on Michelle and who she influenced, as this is a French history podcast, the book includes nine other major women thinkers and activists, including Noe Ito, Rose Posada, Margaret Sanger, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Molly Steimer, Louis Waysbroker, Mercy Otis Warren, and Victoria C. Woodhull. Please enjoy. So what inspired you to look at anarchist and radical women during this period?
1: Well, I think there's a problem with political theory um, and political science in general that we don't seem to uh, take a look at feminists in political science research and uh, we don't take a look at anarchism either. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people think political theory is, uh, is finished, that it doesn't fit well with the rest of political science. Uh, but part of the problem is when we teach the history of political theory, it's all the old white guys from the US and the UK, from Greece and Rome, there isn't really any attempt to look at different thinkers. and uh, So that's the motivation. That was the motivation for, that was the uh, inspiration for another book called American Anarchism. And, uh, you know, the, I'm doing the same thing, which is looking at people who've been forgotten, uh, but whose ideas are worth thinking about. And, uh, also this time I decided just to focus on women. So there are nine people uh, in American anarchism. Two of them were women. This time there are 10 women in Women of Liberty. Uh, so that, that's really, you know, it's, it's partly because I feel that political theory doesn't function properly anymore and it's part of political science which is obsessed with voting as if voting had something to do with democracy. I've never noticed them explaining why voting is all about democracy. It seems like political science uh, is a dead discipline.
0: All right. Well, hopefully you can revive it. You did do an incredible thing, which is you looked at 10 women from all across the world. There's European women, there's women operating in North America, and also you deal with radicals in Japan. Because you deal with women from all across the world, was looking at such a broad topic a challenge for you, and how did you deal with it?
1: Well, you know, obviously it's going to take a long time. It took four years to do the research and uh, if you think about the level of analysis, we're using one chapter to explain each person, so there's a tremendous amount of reading that goes into it. Um, You know, it's not something you can just throw out there, but once you're willing to do that, then it isn't really a problem at all. The other thing to think about is that some of the information say uh, on Victoria Woodhull, There there are lots of books about her, but they're sensational sensationalize her. Uh they uh, they're not really academic books, so the situation is different. Uh with Molly Steimer there's not that much. Uh she didn't write books, but, but there are letters, there there are court cases. There are people who've written about it, so uh, it's, each one is not necessarily the same as the predecessors.
0: So, your book deals with 10 women across the world who became radical, feminist, and anti-authoritarian figures. We're going to focus on Louise Michel, since this is a French podcast, but you do a good job of showing the interconnections between many of these women across the world, so we're going to talk a bit about some others as we go on. But for my first question, let's look at how a woman develops into a radical. Can you give us the backstory on Louise Michel before her involvement in the Paris Commune?
1: Yeah, well, she was illegitimate. She was a household servant's daughter. She wasn't sure who her father was. She was poor. And uh, she saw for herself, her farm workers and farm animals were overworked. Uh, she identified with the local Oatman, um, Celtic kind of ideology there. Uh, the area had Celtic roots. Local people uh, spoke French with a Celtic intonation. Um, and she resisted being married off at the age of 12, but she was a teacher. She was able to be educated because of the way the, the family in whose house she lived treated her. So she was able to become a teacher and she was very intelligent. So she was often other, you know, uh, she was other to the mainstream national government in France and uh, therefore she was sort of raised to be revolutionary.
0: One fascinating thing about this book is that it looks at how life experiences shape these women's ideologies. So often the biographies of influential male thinkers from the Enlightenment to Marx depict them as developing their ideas from pure theory based in academia and gloss over their personal lives Since academia was largely closed to women during this time, I imagine writing about women thinkers involved more research into their personal correspondence and lives than academic papers. Care to tell us about the challenges and opportunities presented by researching these thinkers who were more active in their communities than their male counterparts? Well,
1: it's it's interesting. Uh, Kropotkin argues that many major inventions were not made by academics at all, but rather by people who worked with our hands. And, you know, he talks about Thomas Telford, a civil engineer who built roads and canals, and James Watt, who improved the steam engine. And so it does raise that question, why people study engineering or, or anything else in a university. Uh, you know, it makes us ask what the role of the university is an increasing knowledge. As I said, Michelle was was lucky because she had access to formal education because her, quote, grandparents, unquote, chose to treat her like a grandchild. But other people that I talk about in other chapters, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was unable to move from high school to Union College. Margaret Sanger started working, never went to Cornell, as she planned. Victoria C. Woodhull and her sister, Tennessee C. Clayflin, Clayflin um, probably received only about three years of formal schooling each. And Lois Weisbrooker was only able to train to be a teacher after poverty had forced her to give up her kids for adoption. But on the other hand, Altan wrote political and autobiographical books and articles, many wrote letters, some wrote poetry. Michelle wrote a number of books and articles, although many of them didn't survive. She wrote a biography and many poems. Um, you know, and also another thing to take into account is if, in the case of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, there's a lot of materials uh, But that hasn't stopped her being pretty much ignored uh, because she was seen as being too radical because she presented the bible as a sexist document you really have to use whatever's available and uh, fortunately i was able to do that
0: yes well i'm always up for bashing universities but moving on from that just a bit So let's get into her ideas themselves. How would you describe her philosophy? What were its major points?
1: Well, um, if you think about uh, the commune, how it came about in the spring of 1871, many people on the left wanted to replace capitalism with something kinder, and this included both Marxists and anarchists, who were both very much in favor of the of the commune. Um, pressure had defeated France, with Paris surrendering in January of 1871. So there was a new government, a new national government, but it was heavily influenced by monarchists. And so the citizens of Paris, they had a rare opportunity to revolt, which they did with little violence. And then they held their own elections. Uh, one of the things that really wanted to do and definitely uh, Michelle as part of this was to remove the Catholic Church from the education system to have separation of church and state. Um, a secularism that still exists in France. Uh, for Kropotkin it was a case of uh, peaceful rebellion by the people. It was a unique revolt which sprang from the people's hearts. Uh, it wasn't something deliberately planned, it, it was just something that felt right for many. And and for Marx, the commune was significant because it was the first time that the working class had staged the revolt and, and therefore it pointed the way for future revolutions. At the time of a trial, when the National government crushed the commune, Louise just wanted to die. Uh, she. Had a friend, maybe had a relationship with Theophil Ferre, and she, she goaded the court to to kill her. She said, if you're not cowards, kill me. So being exiled after it was not the outcome that, that she foresaw. Uh, in the new order that, that Michelle and the other communists communists wanted to bring about, she encouraged. Women to just take positions, not to, not to wait for men to give them to them, and of course that was how she lived her life too. Uh, we should also note she cared about animals. When she came back from New Caledonia, she smuggled five of her cats on the ships. You know she, she's known very much for not only caring about poor people, but caring about animals too.
0: Yeah, I can't even imagine how she managed to do that without getting caught because cats are not the quietest things. In fact, before this interview, I had to put my cat away because it was meowing at the door. So in any case, Michelle joined the Paris Commune with gusto, but at times it seems like it didn't quite meet her ideological expectations as women had separate Vigilance committees for men and often had to perform traditional roles as nurses and teachers. Can you elaborate on what she appreciated and opposed within the Paris Commune?
1: Well, um, certainly she believed that the education system in France in general had the effect of training women to to be less intelligent and less equal than men, uh, just like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, she argued that women's traditional occupations, looking after kids, making meals, had limited their mental proficiency. Uh, this is not a, you know, a standard feminist argument, but, but she felt that women had been brainwashed into thinking that running households was women's natural role, and this meant that they settled for domination by men. I mean you can also find that argument in Mary Wollstonecraft and uh, it's quite different from today's contemporary libertarian feminists who say women will always have different lives because they give birth, but Michelle is more radical. Her position also is more compatible um, on education with that of the German anarchist Max Stirner. Um, you know, who believes that education should be about individual self-development, not memorizing what teachers tell you, uh, that, that being successfully educated is to reject all authority but your own. And, and you can maybe think of Sartre too, when, when you uh, make that argument.
0: Yeah, that's quite an interesting thing to reject all authority. And on that note, I think that in order to be considered a truly great thinker, one has to be exiled at some point or another. It happened to Bakunin, Lenin, and Michelle. How did Michelle's 10 years in New Caledonia affect her and her ideas?
1: Well, I am not sure I agree with you that Lennon was a great thinker. More 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 of a mass murderer maybe, but anyway, uh, Michelle didn't expect to arrive in New Caledonia. Um, but but when she got there she spent a time trying to help the native Melanese people there, the the Kanaks. And uh, she learned the language, she taught the kids, she supported them in their political goals, she even supported them in uh, an uprising that took place when she was there, uh, which put her on the opposite side to the other deportes, you know, she uh, she was always the radical. And uh, she also took the opportunity to study the flowers and the geography there. And uh, she wrote a book about them and about the culture and history of the Kanak people, including their unique music. Uh, She hung out with some of the Algerian prisoners who'd also been dumped there in the middle of nowhere. And uh, she also became more of an anarchist rather than a Marxist um, by talking to other prisoners and by reading Proudhon.
0: So that's interesting. So after her exile, she returns to France in 1880 after a clemency is granted to former members of the commune and spent the last 15 years of her life lecturing across Europe. How was she received by various countries and communities during this period? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible.
1: in jail for being involved in demonstrations and so on. A lot of the time she was working with disadvantaged Jewish people in the Whitechapel area of London. There, this disagreement, uh, René Giraud, a friend of Michelle who visited Algeria with her in 1904, uh, wrote a book about her, uh, Le Bon Louise. Which in which he said her, her life is virtually zero from 1890 to 1895. But it depends what you look at. In London with Kropotkin, she founded an anarchist school uh, in 1890. Uh, unfortunately, the school hired Auguste Coulon, uh, an agent provocateur, paid for by the police to disrupt anarchists. Uh, they hired him as an English teacher, so it probably wasn't the best move uh, and it led to the school closing down. Uh, she also got involved with the symbolists and Decadents, um, admiring them for challenging accepted literary and artistic norms. Uh, but her own poetry was much more mainstream and it didn't fit well uh, with what they were doing. Uh, kind of from a literary perspective. So she moved away from them intellectually, right?
0: So there's a fascinating story you tell about how she was shot while giving a speech, but then continued to deliver it, something which I only know Theodore Roosevelt did. Care to tell our listeners about that episode?
1: Yeah, in 1888, she was giving a speech in the Havre, and... a man called Pierre Lucas, a former circus clown uh, who, who was an enemy of anarchism, shot her twice, wounding her in her ear, and then the audience beat him up. But Louise uh, claimed that they were only blanks that he'd fired, and uh, she continued her address. She spoke up on his behalf and uh, you know, refused to file charges against him. And it's worth noticing that another anarchist around the same time, Valtaine de Clare, refused to prosecute one of her students, Herman Halcher, who shot at her, you know, a little bit later in 1902. And and I think what's similar between Leclerc and Michelle is they didn't seek vengeance for his slights and attacks because, like many anarchists, they felt that crime and violence are societal problems, not individual problems. You know, today we tend to blame the homeless. We don't notice that 10% of all the poor people have left California in the last couple of years because there's no housing. Uh, You know, many of the ways that we look at things are to view the individual, like a homeless person, as being being a drunk or, or being lazy, we don't realize that uh, there's a shortage in the housing supply. And, and generally, anarchists, including Michelle, uh, w- would make that distinction in, in her writing.
0: Certainly. So there is quite a lot to unpack there. And one thing which I want to talk about is how Michelle lived a life of paradoxes. On the one hand, she wasn't allowed to attend her own mother's funeral, but her own funeral in 1905 attracted at least 50,000 people. Do you think that her ideas had become popular, or was it just that she was this renowned figure herself?
1: Well, I'm not sure you can
0: uh, separate those two things.
1: Uh, She was poor, but she was educated, and she came from nowhere, but she had a tremendous influenced. She was a symbol uh, and she's thought of today as France's greatest revolutionary. Um, For decades people on the left viewed her as a role model because she more than anyone else typified the spirit of the communists. She was known as La Mer Louise. So she herself and her anarchist ideas were fused. Um, And I think it's also true many of the people who admired her knew little of the specifics of her thought, which is still true today.
0: That is interesting. All right, so I want to expand this a little more because obviously we have focused on Michelle's life and the French part of your book, but your book is really fantastic because it looks at 10 different anarchist women from across the world, from numerous different cultures, and it looks at the interconnections and similarities between women thinkers. So how did Michelle impact other feminists and anarchists in France and around the world?
1: Well, uh, definitely she was a role model for Emma uh, Goldman, and Goldman in turn has become a role model for you know, pretty much everyone. Who is an anarchist, so that, that's a tremendous influence. And she worked when she was in London with Kropotkin and uh, Errico Malatesta and other anarchists, but maybe she also didn't specifically have an influence in the sense that people read what she wrote, partly because a lot of what she wrote isn't, isn't there. And you know, she wrote poems and she wrote an autobiography that, that are definitely there and an account of what it was like as a departe. But she didn't write a book extolling the virtues of feminist theory or of anarchism. And uh, it's only since the 1960s that academic researchers have gone back and looked at the things she did write, uh, which still exist, uh, and they've pieced together some of the theories so but you know even then of course because this is the academic world uh, there's a lot of disagreement between scholars as to what she really thought
0: if you ask two academics for an opinion you'll get three so in any case I was particularly interested in learning about people that she inadvertently influenced. So, for example, Louise Michel inspired Russian-born, North American-based anarchist Emma Goldman, as you mentioned, but then she in turn influenced Japanese thinker Ito Noe. Can you explain how Michel's ideas traveled from France to Japan? Well, in
1: 1895, Goldman traveled to London to meet Michel, and they appeared on stage together at a rally. And, and so definitely, Goldman admired Michelle very much as someone of an earlier um, generation. If, if you think about Goldman, why is Goldman also an outsider? You know, she was from the Russian Empire, but technically she was from the Pale of Settlement. She was from Lithuania. She was Jewish. And uh, her partner, Alexander Berkman, who was also. Jewish was also from uh, Lithuania. He could go to, uh, to Petersburg and speak Russian in a way that he would pass as a Russian. But Goldman didn't speak Russian that way, and so she, she couldn't pass. He was more obvious, obviously a L- Lithuanian Jew. And so, you know, right at the beginning of her life, she was always a second-class citizen in the Russian Empire. Uh, I, I don't know if Ido was familiar with Michelle, uh, so it's the connection is indirect there. But clearly, um, other European anarchists and feminists, uh, including Kropotkin, Steiner, Henrik Ibsen, Margaret Sanger, had been translated, and they were read by radicals in Japan. Ido and her first husband, Chuji Jan, translated some of Goldman's writings and also Ibsen's plays were, were, were on the stage in, in Tokyo, you know, so there definitely was a lot of influence there. Um, also, as a, in my chapter about Margaret Sanger, I point out that she actually visited Japan to try to get people uh, to think about contraception. Uh, and it was difficult for her even to get in, but eventually they led her in. there. So she had uh, she had an influence on thinking in Japan a hundred years ago.
0: Yeah, that is truly incredible, and I like how your book and so many historical works today emphasize transnationalism and a global connections. So do you think there was a universality to Michelle's ideas and those of the other female thinkers during this time? And perhaps as an example, can you tell us a bit how Ito Noe had to adapt her ideas for a Japanese audience?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, both uh, Louise and Noe were anarchists and feminists and uh, certainly There's a universality to both of those belief systems, which, as I argued right at the beginning, should be studied much more, should be thought about much more, should be present in classes in political theory uh, or political philosophy. Um, And, you know, there, there may be of more value today because of the failure of governments, which we see all around us, Neither Louise nor Noe were really willing to compromise. Uh, Michelle wanted to die for the commune she asked to be executed. And Ito uh, did die uh, because of her beliefs after martial law was declared in 1923. Uh, at least indirectly due to the Japanese government, maybe directly, uh, she was murdered because of her beliefs. Uh, But although the Japanese government resisted women's rights, resisted anarchism and socialism at that time, it wasn't really able to silence it. People would go to jail and then read the works of Kropotkin and Goldman. So far from being successful, you reach a point eventually in the 1970s where there's a strong feminist movement in Japan.
0: Fascinating. And I do like that note that now is uh, the best time to get into anarchism, to all those listening. This is a a perfect time. So we've covered uh, Louise Michel and Ito Noe, but what other feminist thinkers particularly interested you in the writing of this book? Well,
1: all 10 fascinate me because they have important ideas. As I've been saying, they're they're missing from the way we explain the history of political philosophy, uh, pretty much, except in women's studies classes, obviously, there's attention given to many of the women. But that raises the question, why are they missing in political science and history and philosophy classes? And, you know, as I said before, they're important because I don't think voting has anything to do with democracy. And uh the presence of Trump in the White House ought to make people much more skeptical, you know, even if they were strongly in favor of it in the past of the importance of voting. Uh, Well, one person I could talk about is Margaret Sanger, who wanted to promote contraception to liberate women's lives. And, And she reacted against the Catholic Church's view that sex should only be uh, to try to have a child. Uh, and she realized that sex could be a much more important part of women's lives, not just lying there with a drunken man on top of them, but actually could be something that women could could learn to enjoy. You know, that view of the Catholic Church that sex should only be to have a baby and therefore contraception shouldn't be allowed. Uh, you know, we find Texas Senator Ted Cruz making that same argument today. Uh, it's sort of hard to believe, but true. Um, and and so the Catholic Church went after Sanger and tried to claim that she was wanting to kill black babies, uh, you know. But really, their goal was to keep women a second class citizens, notwithstanding all the lies that they told about it. So in in my book, in that chapter, I have a somewhat different opinion, as you can imagine. I refer to her as the scientist of human salvation. You know, in, in other words, she wanted to get everyone in the world committed to the idea that the only kids born would be the ones that would be looked after and wouldn't be hungry and would have parents who cared about them. And I think that makes it one of the great thinkers of the 20th century.
0: Well, we've covered so much today. Anarchism, killer clowns, sex, and radicalism. Uh, I want to thank you very much for this fascinating talk. And thank you for being with us, uh, Dr. Schoen. All right. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.